Well, let's turn in our Bibles now to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11 and verses 25 to 27 will be our passage this morning. And it's good to remind ourselves occasionally, if not often, that there are many, many things that we would not know if God had not revealed them to us. The Bible tells us that there are some things that we know because God has revealed himself in creation. We know that God exists. We know that God is good. We know that God is powerful. We know that he is wise because he has created this amazing and orderly and beautiful world that we live in. But we would be in the dark about much of God's character if he had not revealed himself to Moses, for example, and said that he is a God merciful and gracious, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We can't tell those things from looking at the stars and looking at the trees. We only know those things because God spoke them to, again, men like Moses and prophets like Isaiah and and had had them write those words down in the Bible so that we might know what God is like. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 says, but we would not know what that glorious God is up to in the world if he had not made his promises known to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If God had not spoken through the prophets and the apostles, we would not know the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, that all who turn from sin and trust in Christ are forgiven and reconciled to God. There are also certain things about the future that we would not know if God had not revealed them. We would not know where his plan was heading if he had not told us about his plan in advance. For example, we know that Christ will return. Remember the angels who were standing there when the disciples watched Jesus ascend into heaven. They said, this Jesus whom you have seen ascend into heaven is the same Jesus who will one day return from heaven. We are also told in the Bible that there will be a final judgment and that there will be a new heavens and a new earth where God will dwell with His people. We wouldn't know those things if God had not made them known to us. But we also know something about God's plan for the nation of Israel that we would not know if God had not made it known to the Apostle Paul. Paul has been hinting to us about this plan throughout Romans 11, that there will be more Jews who turn to the Lord in the future, that there will be some fullness, some great blessing that will come in the future because of a turning of the Jews to Jesus, the Messiah. But here in verses 25 to 27... He spells out that plan most clearly and most fully and tells us what this something good is that he's been hinting at in clearer terms. So let's look together at verses 25 to 27 of Romans 11 and see what God has spoken through Paul. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, what Paul is giving us here in these verses is a mystery revealed. And he is speaking this mystery particularly to the Gentiles. Remember back in verse 13, he said, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. He's addressing uh, non-Jewish believers mainly in these verses. Though, of course, uh, the truths here are for everyone. But he is focusing particularly on the Gentiles because the Gentiles face a particular problem, a particular temptation that Paul seeks to warn us about and guard us against. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. So he is warning the Gentiles about pride. He is warning us not to be wise in our own sight. And this is something he warned us about a few verses earlier as well when he said, don't be arrogant toward the other branches, toward the the Jewish branches, in particular the ones that have been broken off of the olive tree because of their unbelief. He warned the Gentile believers not to be arrogant, not to be proud toward those branches as though Uh, as though we were somehow better than them. He said, listen, you are connected to the olive tree because you believe. They were broken off the olive tree because they did not believe. But if they believe, they'll be grafted back in. And if you don't continue believing, you will be broken off. You stand fast through faith. So don't be proud and arrogant, but fear. Here again, he's warning us about this temptation toward pride. And and here he's warning us about a pride that comes as a result of ignorance. Now, we're more familiar, I think, with the dangers of pride that come with knowledge. We know that sometimes knowing things that not everybody knows can puff us up. We can become proud thinking that we are better than other people because we know a lot of things, because we think we're really smart or whatever. We know about that temptation to pride, but we don't think as often about the kind of pride that can result from ignorance, from not knowing things that would humble us if we knew them. That's a real danger too. That's why Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be wise in your own sight. And so that you won't be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. In other words, I'm going to tell you this because if you don't know this, I'm afraid you will be proud. But if you know what I'm about to tell you, you will know better than to be proud in the way that I'm afraid you're going to be proud. Not knowing this could lead to pride, but knowing this ought to lead to your humility. We need to be aware of both types of danger 
toward pride. And Paul here, again, is focusing on the pride that comes from ignorance. So what does he want us to know that we don't know, that if we know it, ought to help to humble us? Well, he says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. What does he mean when he uses the word mystery? In the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, a mystery is something that was hidden in the past, but has now been revealed. So it's, it's not still mysterious, but it's called a mystery because until now, we didn't know it. Until now, it was hidden, it was veiled, but now it is being made known. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You didn't know this, but I'm telling you now that when Christ returns and there's a resurrection... Not everybody's going to need to be raised from the dead because some of you are still going to be alive. But whether you're alive or asleep, we are all going to be changed. We didn't know about that before. That's not clear from the Old Testament, but it is clear now, Paul says. Or in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 6, Paul gives us an even fuller idea of what he means by a mystery when he says, when you read this, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he says, as you read this letter, you can see how thoroughly I understand this truth that was not revealed very clearly in former times, in previous generations, but has now been made clear through the prophets and apostles by the Spirit. There were hints of it in the Old Testament about the Gentiles being included in the people of God. But now it's being made known very clearly. It's a mystery that was hidden, but is now being revealed. And I'm making very plain to you that the Gentiles who believe in Jesus are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That was not clear before, but it is clear now. It is a mystery that has been revealed. So what mystery is Paul now revealing to us in Romans chapter 11? He is revealing God's plan of salvation as it involves the Gentiles and the Jews and how it is not only unfolding in the present, but how it will unfold in the future. And there are three parts to this plan. Here's the mystery as he describes it. A partial hardening, this is the the end of verse 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, that's part one, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that's part two. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, that's part three. 
Those three parts and how they connect together are the mystery that was hidden in the past but is now being revealed to us through the Apostle Paul. Now, the first part he mentions is a partial hardening that has come upon Israel. Now, if we've been paying attention to Romans chapter 11, this is not new at this point. Paul has already talked about this in the first eight verses of chapter 11. He's made clear that God has not rejected his people. He's not rejected the nation of Israel, whom he foreknew. There is a remnant that is being saved, just like in Elijah's day. There was a remnant God had kept for himself who had not bowed the knee to Baal. So in the same way, there is a remnant in Paul's day and continue to be a remnant has continued to be a remnant up to our day of Jews who believe in Jesus. Paul himself was an example, as were the other apostles, as were the believers who were saved on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem and, and in the early days of the church and, and, and so on. So he says there's a... But, but he says in verse, um, in verse 7, he says, okay, well, what do we say to this? What, what's happening? Israel, as a whole, failed to obtain what it was seeking... The elect obtained it, that's the remnant, but the rest were hardened. That means that most of Israel has been hardened, but part of Israel has not. And that's what Paul is summarizing here when he says a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Israel's not been rejected, and Israel is not experiencing a complete hardening. It is not as though all of Israel has their hearts hardened against the Lord. There is a partial hardening. Most of the people of Israel are currently under this, this judgment of hardening, but not all Israel. That's the first part. He's already told us about that. He just summarizes it here. But this partial hardening, he says, is temporary. It's not permanent. It's not going to be this way forever. It is temporary. That leads us into the second part where he says, until, that's a, a word that has to do with time, right? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So this partial hardening of Israel is not going to last forever. It's going to last until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That's what's happening right now. Right Right now, from Paul's day to our day, most of the people who are being saved are Gentiles. There are people coming to faith in droves, we hear, in China, in Africa, in the Middle East. People all over the world turning to faith in Christ. Millions and millions, if not billions of people worshiping Jesus all around the world. Many of them, most of them, the majority of them, of course, are not Jews. So what is happening right now and what began to happen in Paul's day is that uh, the floodgates, so to speak, were open for the Gentiles and God was drawing numerous, numerous, numerous Gentiles to faith in the Messiah, and He has been doing that ever since. Again, it's not as though no Jews are being saved right now. There is always at least a remnant. But this is a time in which God is bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles. And at some point, and we're not told when or how or how we would 
you know, know we had reached that point, but at some point, that fullness of the Gentiles will have come in. And at that point, this partial hardening will have come to its end. Right? A partial hardening is upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then what? And that leads us to what I take to be the climax of not only this passage, but I think this whole chapter where he says, And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In this way, meaning through this time of partial hardening, where many, many, many Gentiles are coming in until God has brought in the fullness of the Gentiles, through that hardening and that harvesting is going to come about a time when all Israel will be saved. Remember, God has said in the past, and Paul has brought this to bear uh, more than once in uh, chapter 10 and chapter 11, he has said that his plan is to make his people jealous through a people that are not really a people. That his people's turning from him to idols has caused him to be jealous. The Lord is jealous for his people. He wants their allegiance, their love, their worship. And so he says, they've made me jealous with idols by turning from me. And so I'm going to make them jealous through the Gentiles, through the nations. And so God has been blessing and saving the Gentiles. And Paul says, I'm following God's lead and I'm making as much of my ministry to the Gentiles as I can in the hopes that I'll provoke my people to jealousy so that they might be saved. And eventually, what this verse is saying is, that plan is going to come to fruition. God's plan, no surprise, is going to work. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel is going to be saved. Now, um, there are at least three different ways that people interpret this phrase, all Israel will be saved. This is not a passage that is without controversy. It's not a passage that everybody uh, agrees on what it means. And so I, I'm explaining and will continue ex to explain what I, I'm convinced that it means. But I, I want you to know that the way I'm explaining it is not the only way that faithful Christians try to explain it. One way that people try to explain this phrase, all Israel will be saved, is they say, all this means is that by the end, all the remnant of Israel will have been gathered in. All the remnant will be saved. But as one scholar puts it, this would be so obvious of a truth as to be at this point an anti-climax. Of course all the remnant is going to be saved. What's the big deal of saying that? That doesn't even sound like a mystery, right? We, we knew that was going to happen. That's how some interpret it, but I, I don't find that persuasive. But some do interpret it that way. The second way that people interpret it, and, and this has a little bit um, more meat to it, is they interpret this as speaking of what we might call spiritual Israel. And what they do is they go back to uh, chapter 9, verse 6, where Paul says, Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And they say that's 
still what Paul is talking about here in chapter 11, that inside of the nation of Israel, inside ethnic Israel, there is a spiritual Israel, and not all of the Israelites who are descended from Abraham are a part of this spiritual Israel, just like Paul said, um, you know, Isaac was the child of promise, and not Ishmael, and Jacob was the one God chose to pass the promise on to, and not Esau, even though they had the same father, and they were twins, and all the rest. And so, some say that principle there is still controlling what Paul is saying here near the end of chapter 11, and when he says, all Israel will be saved, what he means is, all the Jews whom God is going to save, and all the Gentiles that he's grafting into that olive tree, all of them from both groups will be saved in this way. The fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and Israel that's not hardened, the, the remnant, you know, they're saved. You can make a pretty good case for that. Right, there, again, that, that's drawing from Romans 9. That is a legitimate um, principle that Paul teaches, right? that not all Israel is Israel. Um, Paul makes very plain in uh, the earlier part of, of Romans chapter 11 in the analogy about the olive tree that Gentiles are being grafted in into the one people of God. Paul makes that point in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jews and Gentiles have been brought together through the death of Jesus so that they are now one man, they're one body, they're one temple, they're one people. We saw earlier in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says the mystery is that the the Gentiles are now um, part of the the one body. They're heirs of the same promises as the Jews. In uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, after Paul has argued throughout the letter that Gentiles don't have to become Jews to be saved. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the law. They just have to believe like Abraham believed. And then they are full sons adopted into God's family, uh, full members of uh, the kingdom of God, of the people of God. At the end of that letter, he says, uh, as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And that phrase is debated as well, but you can make a good case for that Israel of God, their meaning the Jews and Gentiles who have faith in Jesus the Messiah. Now, pretty much all of that I would agree with, but I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 11. I just think that's too far back in the chapter. I don't think that's what he is saying here. And instead, what I believe he's saying, and, um, and, I, and I, this seems pretty clear to me, again, though uh, smarter people than me disagree, um, verse, when he says all Israel will be saved, I think he means there's coming a time when the whole nation of Israel is going to turn to the Lord. And um, one of the chief arguments for that point that people make is Paul has been making throughout chapter 11 a very clear distinction between Gentiles and Jews. Even as he talks about Gentiles being grafted into the one olive tree with believing Jews, he still addresses Gentiles distinctly, and he is talking in verse 25 about uh, a hardening coming upon Israel. We know that means ethnic Israel, right? And 
the fullness of the Gentiles. So he's talking about them distinctly. It would be very strange if all of a sudden in verse 26, now he's talking about them together under the one term Israel. I think he does do that elsewhere. I just don't think that's what he's doing here. So when he says all Israel will be saved, again, I think that means that once all, once the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, there will somehow be a mass turning of the Jewish people to Jesus the Messiah. Now there is a little nuance in this view, as one scholar pointed out. Some people think that means every single Jew alive at that time will be saved. And others say, not necessarily every single one, but certainly the majority, right? Um, that's a pretty fine distinction that we don't really have to, you don't have to have a strong opinion about that. But uh, either way, right, there is going to be, it seems to me, a mass conversion of Israel um, after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And when you look at a plan like this, right, God hardens his own people partially and sends the gospel to the Gentiles and brings masses of Gentiles in order to provoke his own people to jealousy so that in the end his own people will turn in mass to him and be saved. This is a brilliant, wise, amazing plan that God has crafted and is bringing to pass. When Paul gets to the end of this passage, and we're just almost there, in verse 33, he cries out, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Can you believe he came up with something like this? One of the best summaries of this comes a few verses later, we'll hopefully cover next time, where he says in uh, verses 30 and 31 and 32, he says, Just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For, listen to this, God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. He's worked the plan so that everybody is disobedient, so that they need his mercy, so that they need his grace, so that they realize that if they're there in the kingdom, if they're a part of the people of God, they're there by grace, and God gets all the glory. That's what he's doing. Now, Paul does say that there's something about this in the Old Testament, that it's hinted at in the Old Testament. He quotes that at the end of verse 26 and end of verse 27, where he, he says, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Most of that comes from Isaiah 59. That's why we read that earlier in the service. The part about the deliverer or the redeemer who will come from Zion. That comes from Isaiah 59, and uh, sort of all the intricacies of, these, of this quote are, are difficult to parse out, but the basic idea, as Paul understands it, is pretty clear. Right? The deliverer that's going to come, that's Jesus, the Messiah. And what's he going to do? He's going to banish ungodliness from Jacob. He's going to do that by saving his people, by forgiving their sins, by making them new. That's where Paul sees this promise of, 
This uh, conversion of Israel, banishing of ungodliness from Jacob, means a turning of Jacob, of the nation of Israel, to the Messiah. And he says, this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Well, what covenant is it that God has made that involves the forgiveness of sins? It's the new covenant, primarily, where Jeremiah speaks of this new covenant that God will make with his people, where all his people will know him. They'll have their, his word written on their heart. God promises that he will take away his people's sins. This is what Jesus is coming for. In Matthew 1, we're told he was named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And when Jesus sat down with the disciples at the Last Supper before he went to the cross, he gave them the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, right, which is for the forgiveness of sins. Those promises were made initially to Israel. And Paul says, if you will remember who those promises were made to and and believe that God is going to fulfill them for the Jewish people in the future, then it will keep you from being proud and puffed up and thinking that all of this is all about you. And that the reason you're included right now is because somehow you figured something out that the Jewish people have missed. Now you're not in because you're smarter or more spiritual. You're in by grace. You are in because God has brought judgment on His own people for a time so that He might save a mass of people who had no claim to him, the Gentiles, so that he might provoke his own people, the Jews, to jealousy so that they might be saved and inherit the promises intended for them as well so that all of us, Jews and Gentiles, will one day gather before the throne of the Lord and say, we are here by mercy. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And as Paul says at the end of the chapter, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. It might look like God has rejected His people, but He has not. It may seem that the Jewish people will only ever be a small part of those who are saved. But Paul says there's coming a day when all Israel will be saved. God has not rejected His people. And the majority of His people will not always reject Him. There will come a day when the Jewish people will turn to Jesus, the Deliverer, when ungodliness will be banished from Israel, and a great multitude of Jews and Gentiles will gather together to praise the glorious grace of and wisdom of God.